0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the weekly chapter by chapter recap. My name is Corey and I'm here with my husband, Matt Locke. Uh, we're back.
1: We're back. We're back after yep.
0: two weeks of battling illness that <laughs> yeah. w- went through our family. It was not fun, but thank you for bearing with us. Uh, I'm glad that we had last year's resources to kind of pull forward in and so that we still kept you going yeah, with right. the recap, but I'm very glad to be here today. So thank you for your patience. Um, you know, as we work towards, we're, we're working working towards the New Testament, working towards the, uh, the end of the summer, there's going to be a few more changes as we go because currently I am 32 weeks pregnant, so I'm getting really close to the end, but we're going to try to tape ahead a little bit so that we don't have to rerun anything so that it will all be new content, but more on that. As we get closer, to that. all right. <laughs> okay, so today we are taking a look at Isaiah 15 through 35. I love Isaiah; one of my absolute favorite uh, books of the Old Testament. Yeah. I think it's really interesting. No, it's awesome.
1: It's an awesome book.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, so let's just jump right in. Isaiah 15 to 16. I'm going to group these together because it's one long. Prophecy Against the Nation of Moab, which shows up a lot in the history of the books that's recorded in the books of Kings and Chronicles. So you get to see Moab's interaction with Israel and with Judah, and it's often as an enemy nation so we get to see this long prophecy against moab here in 15 and 16 in isaiah chapter 17 the theme of prophesying against foreign nations continues this time isaiah records a prophecy against damascus which is it's representative of the nation of aram sometimes called syria in your bibles just depending on the translation because damascus was the capital city of aram syria uh This prophecy also extends to Northern Israel. Uh, So we have to remember here that Northern Israel had teamed up with Uh, or Syria in an anti-Assyrian coalition. So they were trying to resist the neo-Assyrian invasion that was coming against the land, that was really sweeping the land uh, and winning. So they they teamed up with this idea that they were stronger together than they were apart, which of course is is normally true. Uh, But they had a problem because Judah did not want to join their coalition. So uh, they began to war against Judah with the idea idea being that they would capture the territory of Judah, uh, likely enlist all of their fighting men, definitely their chariotry and their army, uh, and they would put a client king up on the throne of Jerusalem. So it was a way of building territory, of building their power, of building their manpower against Assyria. It didn't work that way, uh, but this chapter records uh, God's prophecy of judgment and destruction. Uh, What's really interesting though is that this judgment and destruction isn't just for death. It's not just for final judgment. Uh, Rather, this judgment of God is going to result in people turning back to God. They're going to become serious about following God again, at least some of them. All right, now Isaiah chapter 18. Uh, in this section where you know, Isaiah is talking about the fate of nations uh, that are all around Judah and interacting with Israel and Judah, we see this section about the nation of Cush. And we learn here from Isaiah that the nation of Cush, Kur- uh, they were feared far and wide for being just mighty warriors and very adept at battle. Uh, And Cush, this prophecy, it said that Cush, even though they're so feared and they're so mighty, they will not be able to stand against God. Cush, the nation of Cush, would eventually serve the Lord. So if the most feared nation of warriors would end up serving God, their resistance against him was futile, then maybe Israel and Judah, you also should choose willingly to follow God. So this is the, the, the thrust of Isaiah chapter 18, where mm. Isaiah uses, uh, you know, pop culture of his day um, in this prophecy to try to spur Israel and Judah on towards following God mm. before the force of God's judgment falls upon them. All right, Isaiah chapter 19. This is a prophecy against Egypt, and it's interesting because we see in this in this prophecy Isaiah and well God through Isaiah really taking pagan imagery and pagan wording in order to show that God is the true God. He is the real God. So, what I'm talking about here can be seen in verse 1. It says this. See, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him and the hearts of the Egyptians melt with fear. Now, the kind of cultural appropriation is probably what we would call it today uh, that's going on here is that very, the the very first few words of that sentence, see, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. See, because in Egypt, it was known, uh, and it was known about Egypt, that their god Seth was said to ride on a cloud. So by this phrasing, the prophecy is showing that no, Seth is actually not a real god at all. He is an idol, and he will tremble before the real god who will ride in on a cloud and come into Egypt. So essentially, God is greater than all the Egyptian gods. So again, this prophecy in chapter 19 ends with Egypt accepting God as God and worshiping God, which is an interesting Mm -hmm. theme throughout Isaiah. All right, Isaiah chapter 20. One of the reasons that I love Isaiah is because he often will date his prophecies using historical events. And today we can go back into the historical records and pinpoint some of these dates. And this prophecy of Isaiah 20 is one of those. So it's dated to the year that Sargon, the king of Assyria, took the city of Ashdod, which we know today was 711 BC. Mm -hmm. So this is a very cool, you know, concrete yeah, that's right. point in time thank you isaiah yeah. i appreciate that <laughs> i really do so <clears throat> what's what's different i can't say unique because he 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 has to do this a few times but what's what's interesting about this prophecy is that to really drive home the impact of this prophecy isaiah had to take off um, all of his clothing of mourning that he was already wearing from all of these other prophecies. You know, when he was prophesying the destruction of other nations, he put on cl- distinct mourning clothing mm-hmm. uh, to draw attention to himself. You know, these are not good prophecies. These are sad. These are times of loss and judgment. But for this one, he has to strip off of the off those clothings and be naked to illustrate how both Egypt and Cush, these nations that everyone turned to for military aid and support Mm -hmm. because they were so mighty. Uh, These nations, Egypt and Cush, would be stripped naked and paraded by the conquering Assyrians. Mm. Isaiah chapter 21. This prophesies the future fall of Babylon, which is really interesting because the Neo-Babylonian Empire had not yet risen to prominence. It would after Isaiah's life. Um, And he talks about how Uh, The fall of Babylon would be welcome relief uh, to God's people who had been oppressed by Babylon. So all of that context is already wound up within this prophecy that the Neo-Babylonian empire will rise, that it will oppress God's people. Uh, you know, the, the people of God are envisioned in this prophecy as grain that has been threshed by the Babylonians. So literally put on the ground and trampled upon until uh, the 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 edible grain is separated from the chaff. Uh, Edom's fall, the nation of Edom, their fall is also briefly spoken of and Arabia's fall too. Mm. Isaiah chapter 22. Okay, this is a prophecy directly related to Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem is called the Valley of Vision. Now, this is an ironic title uh, because the people are said to be spiritually blind, right? So, the Valley of Vision, spiritually blind. And there's two accusations really that happen in this chapter. First, destruction has come to Jerusalem because the people have not repented. That's the first accusation. And the second accusation is that God has Isaiah chastise the palace administrator of Jerusalem, whose name is Shebna. Because Shebna is supposed to be concerned with the upkeep and the preservation of Jerusalem. He's the palace administrator. You know, administrate the palace, make sure that Jerusalem's going well. But instead, Shebna's only concerned with making himself this grand, amazing, beautiful, Tomb. Now, this is extremely ironic because uh, this is exactly what the people of Jerusalem are doing. Rather than focusing on their spiritual lives with God and building up a beautiful relationship with God, they're only focused on their physical city. But God has prophesied to them through Isaiah that their city is going to become their tomb. They're going to die there. So Shebna's doing the exact same thing just in a literal way. He's focusing on the wrong thing. He's literally focusing on making his final resting place the most beautiful and famous place ever so that his name will last forever. Uh, so there's, there's a really nice twist mm. that goes along with this chapter. Okay. Okay. Isaiah chapter twenty three. There's a prophecy here against Tyre and Sidon. These were the principal port cities of uh, uh, of of that section of the Mediterranean Sea for years, for generations. Uh, you know, Tyre and Sidon were <coughs> economic powerhouses that essentially controlled all trade in that area. Now their destruction is spoken of, their future destruction. Uh, And what's really interesting here is that Isaiah talks about how even though their future isn't going to be worshiping God, they will be destroyed, but all future prophets of these cities will be for the Lord's people. Uh, So, Again, Isaiah has these really interesting themes that, that that go throughout all the chapters. So if the prophets of the most profitable cities, uh, trading cities in the area, will eventually be God's anyway, then why would you choose to trust in Tyre and Sidon instead of in God? Because the end game is it's all God's anyway. Human wealth is nothing it should be regarded as nothing so Isaiah always brings that back like why trust in the military might of Egypt and Cush because even they will bow before God why trust in the wealth of Tyre and Sidon because eventually all that wealth is God's anyways a main theme all right Isaiah chapter 24. This is all about how God now will bring judgment on the entire world. Not just specific nations. Uh, Sometimes this section in Isaiah is called the mini apocalypse because of this. Because it's talking about judgment uh, for all of the world. It has this apocalyptic theme. You know it talks about the earth reeling like a drunkard. Swaying like a hut in the wind. Uh, You know verse 20 says so heavy upon it upon the earth is the guilt of its rebellion that it falls never to rise again in that day the lord will punish the powers in the heavens above and the kings on the earth below they will be herded together like prisoners bound in a dungeon they will be shut up in prison and punished after many days the moon will be dismayed the sun ashamed for the lord almighty will reign on mount zion and in jerusalem and before its elders with great glory so it's talking about this end game where God will bring justice.
1: And what's interesting too about that verse you just you just quoted, on that day the Lord will punish the host in heaven, in heaven, mm-hmm. and the kings of the earth on the earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it reminds us when we were talking about Psalm 82 and that relationship between the heavenly hosts and the kings, and mm-hmm. the kings are representative of the heavenly hosts. It's constantly being drawn here in Isaiah as well. Even Isaiah 14, which I know we passed last week. But um that relationship between kings and the heavenly hosts is just like always being drawn between them. You see Ezekiel 28, too, um, where like God is judging the heavenly hosts through the kings or at the same time, kings and the heavenly hosts yeah. simultaneously. So because they have power over other people, like literally the, the heavenly hosts do it in a very real way, but as much as the kings do, mm-hmm. right? It just is a different kind of power. Mm-hmm. Um so you see that and, and that's who God draws it's like <laughs> you think about what it brings to mind is that when the Bible teaches you in James you don't become a teacher there's authority that comes with teaching in the Bible mm-hmm. and uh, once again we see here that God has harsher judgments for those with authority and with here of the king and the heavenly hosts and it's kind of like the same relationship where it's like with these people of authority there'll be harsher judgment and 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 that relationship between the heavenly hosts and the kings is still interrelated; like you can't break. Yeah, those it's two it's apart. definitely
0: maintained. I mean, yeah. it says verse twenty-two says they will be herded together, like yeah. prisoners bound in a dungeon. They will be shut up in prison and will be punished after many days. Yeah. So there is there is judgment for for them. Yeah, and I, it will be together.
1: I think this is actually like a. It, it, I'll talk about it maybe in a little bit, but there's a strong relationship between that concept and and the reason why the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside you anyways i'll talk about that later (laughs) sure yeah yeah
0: okay isaiah 25 this is now so after the judgment is spoken of this is now a song of praise to god for that judgment for bringing his true justice and ultimate justice to the world and saving people so there's this image of a banquet that's prepared by god for his people um Verses 7 and 8 here in Isaiah chapter 24 talk about how God destroys death and he wipes away the tears from people's eyes and he removes people's disgrace from them. He removes their sin from them. Isaiah 26 continues this, this um, song of praise. This time, the song of praise is coming from the land of Judah. It talks about how God keeps the, uh, his people in peace, how he makes the paths of the righteous smooth, how it, it talks about the resurrection from the dead and how it's God <coughs> alone who causes the dead to raise to life again. In Isaiah chapter 27, there's this really interesting allusion to Leviathan, but specifically um, Leviathan not as a physical creature on earth, but uh, the Leviathan that comes from ancient Near Eastern mythology. So uh, how uh, Baal, in in Near Eastern mythology, it was how the god Baal uh, defeated the chaos monster Leviathan in order to establish the natural order that we see around us. And so Isaiah chapter 27 talks about this, but again reverses it showing that only God uh, established the natural order. Only he has the ability to control or defeat chaos in any sense because God is sovereign over everything over all creation and then the bulk of the chapter then moves on to deal with the restoration of Israel and Judah so Israel and Judah have been thrust the connection here is that Israel and Judah by their destruction have been thrust into chaos and only God himself can reorder his people from out of this destruction, this chaos state. Isaiah chapter 28, this is a woe, A lament for the leaders of Israel and Judah, specifically the priests, the prophets, and the officials, because they're not going to escape the judgment of God. It talks about how the people of God will eventually be restored, uh, and that the Messiah, who is called here the cornerstone, will himself reestablish what leadership should look like because the leadership has gone so far off the deep end and so far away from what God originally intended leadership to look like. So it will be the Messiah who. Brings that back, Isaiah chapter twenty nine. This is a woe uh, pronounced on Jerusalem. Who in this chapter is called Ariel, uh, which either means city of God or lion of God. There's there's um, there's movement on this. There's there's ideas on both sides. It can mean city of God or lion of God. But regardless, this word sounds like the Hebrew word for altar heart altar hearth which is very fitting because Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and the people who live in Jerusalem are going to be destroyed in Jerusalem. So it's it's a very negative picture because we see Jerusalem being compared here to an altar hearth where animals are sacrificed upon. Um, essentially you may be the city of God but God is going to offer your people like a burnt offering. God's going to destroy you, essentially using the fury of ungodly nations. But then he's also going to punish the ungodliness of those nations. So it's, again, it's about God's ultimate justice. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 30. This is all about how the Judeans, the Judahites, uh, the, the people of Jerusalem and Judah are rebellious. So it talks about how they make plans for, Without God in mind, they ally themselves with other nations, but they don't ally themselves with God. And they make these partnerships without consulting God. It talks about how their allegiance with Egypt is doomed. And then there's this call for repentance towards God and trust. So Isaiah is identifying the problem and still calling for repentance, still calling for trust. Because remember, during Isaiah's lifetime, Judah is going to be severely humbled, but not completely destroyed. Not completely yet. So he's still calling for that repentance. Mm-hmm. Isaiah chapter 31, this uh, gives a woe upon everyone who decides to rely on Egypt rather than God. And then there's a call to return to God. In Isaiah chapter 32, uh, this chapter presents a contrast. So uh, what... A righteous kingdom would look like versus what's actually going on in judah so sets up two pictures here and there's this promise that eventually there will be a righteous king and a righteous kingdom it's just not what's happening right now so again it's this calling out of sin Uh, in isaiah chapter 32 god speaks to the women of jerusalem who very often awfully will have to face the reality of an Assyrian invasion Uh, and yet even this judgment there is still hope in this uh, because Isaiah chapter 32 talks about when this spirit will be poured out from heaven which is really interesting. Isaiah chapter 33 is very similar to a call and response chapter and the call and response goes between uh, the destroyer which is Uh, likely Assyria in this context and the people of God calling out to God for grace and God responding to all of this. Mm. Ultimately the righteous are promised to see the coming of the righteous king and the kingdom as it should be. And there's this promise that the Lord himself will be judged, he will be lawgiver, he will be king, and the sins of all of the righteous will be forgiven. So it's important to note here that even the righteous people are not sinless. Righteous does not mean sinless. Right? Right? Even in the Old Testament, this is not what this means. These are people who are trying to follow God, and God will honor that Um by removing their sins by forgiving their sins mm-hmm. isaiah chapter 34 we have two more chapters left today chapter 34 is all about the lord's day of vengeance specifically against the nations against all of the all of the unrighteous in general and it's described very poetically in chapter 34. now isaiah chapter 35 uh this contrasts chapter 34 because it's looking at the joy of everything else and everyone else once evil has finally been dealt with can't even imagine that can you imagine like all of the injustice in the world all of the evil that we see around us that we experience in our own lives all of a sudden it's dealt with yeah finally yeah not by human courts there's a certain there's a certain amount of satisfaction that you can feel through hum- human courts.
1: Well, that's right.
0: But I... ultimate justification, ultimate justice is something that we do not yet know. And so Isaiah chapter 35 is envisioning that and envisioning the joy that everything and everyone will experience after that.
1: Right, and to tie back to Isaiah 25 for what you're saying, with the, the one day, on that day, everyone goes, that day, right? Uh, Isaiah 25 uh, verses 7 to 8, And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. So that pain, that ultimate justice, it comes to fruition at, when he swallows up death forever, At mm-hmm. all like the veil. The,
0: yeah, because the even the point. because the even the sins of the righteous have to be removed from them because they're still evil. They're still wicked. That's right. wickedness there right. until that's dealt with.
1: That's right. So here in Isaiah, you see here that death will be swallowed up forever. Mm-hmm. How how you know you have the Sadducees and Pharisees talking about there is there is no eternal life. How is that possible if death swallowed up forever? Right. It's kind of like he, he's explicitly saying here that. At one day, you'll there'll be life. Yeah, you can't have oh death is gone, but no mm-hmm. one's alive, right? Mm-hmm. It means de- it means there's the people are alive and there's no death. Yeah, and that is the point. What's amazing about that too is that death is the veil. Often you think about death as a subtraction yeah. of life, but it's like death is an actual like he's uh, Isaiah is drawing a parallel between. Death is an actual positive term, whereas a substance that's that's actually inhibiting you—it's you. something that's a been applied to us. Yeah, it's a wall. It's that veil, yeah. you know, that you know we look through a, a mirror dimly or a glass dimly. That it's that veil that it, it, it that disables you from seeing things truly and fully. Mm-hmm. It is what is that veil that doesn't allow you to see God for who He truly is? Mm-hmm. Is that veil that compromises our holiness? Yes, it's that. that's that all that things, right? So it's like
0: well, I, you know, I, I, that that's what's re- one real. You know, to continue what you're saying, it's really interesting because we often think of, you know, I I think in in Christian culture, we often think of eternity as somewhere where there's no physical ailments. And while that is certainly true, uh, the physical ailments that are spoken of here in Isaiah are almost like certainly symbolic as much as they are physical yeah i mean in verse five it says then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped the uh then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert the burning sand will become a pool the thirsty ground bubbling springs In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. Only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued, will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Hmm. So we see, you know, all throughout the New Testament as well, where where Christ talks about us not being able to see and sin separating us from God and sin blinding us. And and Paul talks about it. Like you, you quoted... looking in a mirror dimly, right? Now, certainly also one of the reasons for Christ's miracles was to point to this because indeed he made the deaf see. He made the lame walk. That's right. He made sorry, he made the deaf hear. The blind see. I know what you mean. Everyone else knows
1: what you mean. Yeah. yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. But I should still clarify. Yeah. And that that is in reference back to Isaiah, back to this showing that christ was this initiator of the kingdom of god right he was this right so certainly it it means physical restoration but it's more than just physical restoration it's also spiritual restoration that's right otherwise
1: why even draw the heavenly hosts why even have these comparisons between kings and you know and the spiritual beings yeah exactly so yeah it's it's like anyone who thinks that you know let's say the Sadducees or Pharisees of the time that you know it's just a physical book just about precepts and living your everyday Mm -hmm. life it's like you're just completely missing it it's completely missing the point here it's like there's a spiritual reality that is that is tethered to our physical reality inseparably they have Mm -hmm. they're in one entails the other necessarily Mm -hmm. and so it's like it's it's kind of the whole point of the incarnation it's like the incarnation is the fusion of those it's two. Both. It's both. It's both. Right. Christ so is both. so yeah. it's yeah. You have this amazing, and that's what Isaiah is getting. And we will obviously get into it more as we explore.
0: This that. theme is all throughout Isaiah. Uh, yeah, and, right. and, and 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 even beyond.
1: Yeah, right. But <clears throat> specifically in Isaiah, it's like so much of it has to do with this. Uh, the, you're talking about apocalyptic with the the final judgment and the final restoration, the new Eden. Because even in that quote I said on on uh, Isaiah 25. It specifically said, "It will swallow up death on this mountain." Now, this mountain—we talked about this in Eden. Eden was supposed to be on a mountain, supposed to be like God's glorious temple for, like, on the earth. Like, right? So, these these mountains represent high places and Mm -hmm. places of spiritual of spiritual authority. So, on this mountain, on this like Edenic world, I will swallow up death. So, you have this like beautiful parallel pushing back to Genesis, also highlighted in Revelation and uh, of this new world that's going to come. So it's like Isaiah is full of great disaster, but it's also full of contrasted by great hope. Yeah. Right. This is just one day and all you have to do is faithfully love the Lord and repent and follow him that's what Mm -hmm. he said he's the steadfast love i will not take away Mm -hmm. anyways but there's a lot to talk about but there's
0: lots to think about as we continue going through isaiah so that's it for this week uh let us know any comments or questions down below and we will see you next week with more of isaiah thank you so much for watching we want to keep producing high quality biblical content but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.